Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? I am uh, ex- doing exceptionally well. Yay. How's that? Hey. Good to see you. So, uh, so hey, you know, before we do that, before I get started, let's, uh, why don't you all stand up and let's just say hi to a couple people. Uh, uh, wander around, it's okay to do that. And Holly Donnelly, how are you? All right, good work. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. I think your back probably appreciates that. I know I, uh, uh, I love this space. I love all that we do, but uh, I am not a big fan of the folding chairs. Uh, so, so maybe we'll, uh, we'll consider investing in like some, some lazy boys for you folks. Uh, you know, there's this thing about churches in, in movie theaters, and now that movie theaters have gone to the... Uh, those I, I every time I go into the theater, I always think we could never do church here, because uh, I would be so envious of all you'd all be like leaning back and <laughs> I just imagine so. Uh, yes, that wouldn't be so good. So we began a new series last week. It's an Old Testament story. It begins with a dream and it ends with a dream being fulfilled. And some uh, kind of as a way, as a, some background and also some, uh, some information as we move forward. Uh, this is, I mentioned this last week, this is a dysfunctional family gone terribly wrong, right? There's, uh, it's all about favoritism. Jacob, the father in this story, uh, gives his favorite son, Joseph, a special robe, letting everybody know that he is the special son. Family that this was not a working robe. He was not to work. Uh, this signified that he had greater status, that he had position, that he had privilege. And uh, Joseph received that and uh, seems in his dreams to demonstrate having some uh, uh, issues with arrogance, right? He poorly handles the dream that God uh, uh, makes, uh, uh, gives to him. And the brothers, because of this favoritism and possibly because of some of this arrogance, the brothers demonstrate incredible envy and jealousy. And it seems uh, uh, just 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 uh, interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but on the podcast, you get both versions. You get uh, of Sunday morning. You get to hear whoever's preaching in Voorhees, and you also get to hear whoever's preaching here. So I always get an extra message out of this because during the week, I listen to whoever preached in in Voorhees, or if I'm in Voorhees, I listen to whoever preached in Mount Laurel, uh, because I like to hear uh, what's going on uh, at that other campus, and also to be able to uh, preach the series through seamlessly, it's nice to hear what's going on. And Pastor Jeff made a great point, I just kind of touched on it, but he spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this idea of envy and jealousy, and that it's something that can seem innocuous. It can, uh, I mean, everybody's jealous of something, right? I mean, I see a car driving by, and I think, oh, Oh, man, I'd love to have that car, right? That, that's a form of jealousy in a sense, right? The whole story, though, this whole story is launched by the jealousies of these brothers, and jealousy and envy can kill. It can kill. And he referenced a, a, a scripture from Proverbs that says jealousy is like cancer in the bones. And it can wreak havoc on us. And so, so jealousy and envy, it's not something just to be looked at and just move on from there. So this idea of favoritism and arrogance and envy, this is a dysfunctional family gone terribly wrong. 
And then last week we talked about that here at Mount Laurel, that God is the with us God, that Joseph may not have been aware of what God was doing. He may not have even felt close to God at times, but we, the readers of the story, get to see that God is at work through the whole story, that God is a with us God, and that God loves the dreamer, that God loves the dreamer even more than God loves the dream. And the dream is important to God, but never at the sacrifice of the dreamer. And so throughout the story, we see that God will use the circumstances, some very dark circumstances, to prepare and grow Joseph because God loves the dreamer. And then we also talked about that dreams are those things that excite your heart and fill your soul. And those dreams can become visions and those visions can become reality because God designed each of us to have dreams and and God puts those dreams into our hearts and our minds and so I want to challenge you over the next couple of weeks to ask yourself this question and you can begin to ask it now what is on my horizon what are the things that God may be planting in me in way of dream what are those things that God what are those dreams that God has for me so some ways that God may be putting dreams into your heart and mind let me suggest some things maybe it's a dream about your marriage And maybe right now your marriage is struggling. You maybe could just say, well, we just fell out of love. Things are just not the same. Something slipped. Or maybe marriage is a brand new thing on your horizon. So what's your dream for your marriage? Maybe it's, hey, we've been married for 25 years and we've got hopefully 25 more. But what's the dream for those next 25? What's the dream for your marriage? God wants to turn that dream into a vision and a reality. Or maybe your dream is about your kids or your family. It's for health, for your family or health. Or or maybe it's about your family being relationally well off. Or about your kids finding a connection to God. So what is that dream that God has for you? Maybe it's your career or college or work. Wondering what could be. Maybe one job is ending for you. When and will the next one start? Or maybe work has become a job. It used to be a career, and now it's just become a job. Or maybe it's about retirement, or it's about your health, or it's about your future. But how do you, what are those things that God has on your horizon, and how do you move that from dream to vision to reality, from idea to plan to action? And so I challenge you to ask that question. What's on my horizon? What does God have for me in this next phase? And so I'm going to use a story uh, that happened in our family about, I think it's about a decade ago. Kelly and I were talking and we were discussing that our three children, and back then they were about 13 and uh, younger. I can't do the math. 13 and 10 and 6 about, okay? And that was about where they were. And as they were growing up, we kind of noticed that our, our, we were trending toward bad eating habits, You know, Doritos were like one of the four food groups for us, you know, things like that. And so we decided together as a couple, we thought we were going to institute some healthy eating. And this was our dream for our family. And we kind of turned that dream into a vision and we wanted to make it fun for our kids. And so we decided to have a summer healthy eating contest. And you can imagine the excitement around the dining room table as we presented this idea to our children. It had all of those responses that you'd expect. I'll share with them 
in a little bit later in the message. But okay, so 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 what is it? What is it that God has on your horizon for you, for your family? What is it that God uh, has in mind? What dreams are you dreaming for for you? So some background, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a story found in Genesis. It's, uh, as we mentioned, it's a family with incredible blessing and also incredible dysfunction. Uh, God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled through Jacob's line, and you can read that story beginning in Genesis chapter 12. It's a nomadic and agrarian system here, so they're shepherds and farmers, and so they would uh, farm a plot of land, but they'd also uh, move far as they uh, found grazing land for their, uh, for their sheep and such. Jacob has multiple wives and multiple sons. Uh, as a matter of fact, in chapter 29, you can read a little section there about Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah and Rachel. And so he has, he has Leah, who, uh, this is kind of a great story. You can read it in uh, chapter 29. Leah, uh, he's kind of tricked into marrying Leah. That's always a great way to get married, right? But, uh, but that's kind of what happens. You can read about it, okay? Uh, he's tricked into it. And then after he's tricked into it, he finds out after, uh, after the wedding that it wasn't uh, Le- uh, Rachel who he loved. It was Leah, who he, her older sister. And so uh, then uh, he goes back to his father-in-law and says, hey, I still want to marry Rachel. And so he waits around and eventually is allowed to marry Rachel. And then Leah and Rachel also each have a maidservant. And so those maidservants become concubines uh, for, uh, for Jacob. And all of this you can read about in chapters 29 and 30 and 31 and on. And uh, let me tell you, I told you last week, this could be, this could be a, um, a lifetime movie. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's really what this is, okay? And so there are, are lots of sons, and you read all about them in, the, in those chapters as well. So this, though, is a centuries-old story, but what is so exciting, 5,000-year-old story, it still applies today, except for all the concubines and, and those kind of things. But the rest of it still applies today, okay? So, uh, so we're going to read some of it together. It's going to be up on the screen. Uh, Joseph is traveling to meet his brothers who are out in the field, and they're miles from home. They're actually several days from home, and the story picks up where we left it off last week. It's from verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Like, Leave that up there, Matt. I'm just going to pause for a second. Now, uh, the brothers, they see Joseph from far away. So you can imagine that they're with their flocks out in a field, and there's these rolling hills and valleys, and they recognize this brother from far away, and he is walking or possibly riding an animal toward them, but it's going to take some time. So they can see him. He's a long way off. And as he's a long way off, they begin to plan. Verse 19, it's up on the screen. Here comes the dreamer. Now, first thing is they decided to give this guy a nickname. They're calling him the master of dreams. Okay, that's more literal. He's the master of dreams. Here comes the dreamer. But what they've also done is they've dehumanized him. They no longer call him by his name. He's just the dreamer, right? And so as we read the story, we can, I can almost imagine that they're looking around as they're planning. This isn't a planned out scheme. They're figuring this out as they go along. So he said, they say, here comes the dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into uh, one of those cisterns. All right? Yeah, let's do that. And then we can tell our father... A wild animal has eaten him. 
And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So you see, there's these ten brothers, and they're gathered around, and they're saying, here he comes. The guy that says he's going to lead over all of us. Let's kill him, some one of them says. And then the mob mentality takes over. Yeah, let's kill him. Let's, let's put him over there in the cistern. And then we'll just tell dad he's dead. So plan A, kill him and put his body in a well. Verse 21, it's up on the screen. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, now Reuben may have been off somewhere. He's, he's the guy right now in charge of watching the sheep, possibly. Reuben now heard of their scheme. He came to Joseph's rescue. He shows up as they're in the midst of this plan. Joseph's still getting there, and this plan is taking place. Everyone's involved in figuring this plan out. Reuben shows up. He hears about the plan, and he says, let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Here's a better idea. Plan B, let's just throw him into an empty cistern. Let's just throw him in the cistern. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning. Now the reader tells, or the writer tells us, the reader, Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Now, Reuben's the oldest son. Reuben seems to be the peacekeeper, okay? Peace at all costs. He doesn't want to rock the boat. So Reuben comes up with this plan B. He says, let's just put him in a cistern, and he'll just starve to death. That's so much better, right? <laughs> I mean, see, this, this, this is awful, isn't it? Now, per, now, at the same time that Reuben is suggesting that to the other brothers, Reuben also has a personal plan, all right? He's planning, because he's the peacekeeper, he's planning when tempers have cooled down, I'm going to get him out. But what's going through his mind? Is this cowardice? Is he afraid to stand up to his brothers? Is this conflict avoidance? And what's he planning on doing when he brings Joseph back home? See, if the brothers have left him in a cistern to die, and Reuben's going back to get him when the brothers don't know, and they pull him out, and they bring him back, what's, what's the conversation going to be when they get back home? I mean, is he just hope the brothers have cooled down and Joseph forgives them? Is he hoping that his dad will get involved and his dad will resolve the situation? We really don't know what's going on in Reuben's mind, we just know that there's a mob mentality that the brothers are a part of, and he's not strong enough, strong enough in character, it seems, to put a stop to what's happening. So he comes up with this plan B. All right, up on the screen, verse 23. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful coat he was wearing because that coat just angers them so much. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, don't you just love that? Like they work so hard. They, they rip the coat off their brother. They throw him into a dry well. And then they stop for lunch. Is this just dastardly? I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible story. 
Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, dentine probably, uh, balm and aromatic resins from Gilead down to Egypt. And so this caravan of traders happens to be going past just as they're having lunch and Joseph is in a dry well. Now the plan morphs. All right, it's going to morph again. We've got plan A, plan B. Now we're on to plan C. All right, we'll see what it is. Uh, it's up on the screen. So Judah said to his brothers, what will, be, what will we gain by killing our brother? I mean, we'd have to cover up the crime, and that's such hard work, right? Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. And then he says this, after all, I mean, he is our brother. Are you kidding, right? He's our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite, tra uh, Midianite traders, now what, what's happening there, and some, some people have some issues with this because are they Ishmaelites or are they Midianites? Just so you know, here's the way I understand this. Ishmael is a general term. Midian is a specific people group. So in other words, it would be like, hey, we're all from Jersey and we live in Mount Laurel. All right? We're from Jersey but we live in Mount Laurel, all right? So they're Ishmaelites who were Midianite traders. They came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, which is the going rate for an adult male at that time period. So they got, they got the, no, really, they got the going rate. And the traders took him to Egypt. Up on the screen, verse 29. Sometime later, Ruth off somewhere, probably in charge of the flocks. The other brothers have gone with plan C. Reuben is still on plan B. He hopes to go get Joseph, take him back home, and possibly have dad deal with this issue. So sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern when he discovered that Joseph was missing. He tore his clothes in grief, and then he went to his brothers and lamented, the boy is gone, what will I do now? Remember, Reuben is the peacekeeping guy, all right? He wants to resolve this issue, and he's also the oldest, and so it's likely that he'll be held accountable. So then the brothers killed a young goat. Now we move on to the cover-up. And they dipped Joseph's robe into the blood. And they sent the beautiful robe to their father. Did you notice that? They sent it ahead of them. All right? They UPS this thing and sent it with somebody else to dad. Is this just awful, awful, awful story? They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? And so they used this coat as evidence and suggesting that he was killed by some wild animals. And that's all they need to do because Jacob fills in the blanks himself. Verse 33, it's up on the screen. Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And then Jacob, oh, then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. Such a tragic story. Verse 35, his family all tried to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning 
for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. Sad, dastardly story. Now, we are fortunate in that as we are reading this story, I could assume probably for the majority of us, as we read this story, we know the ending. But imagine what it would be like to read this for the first time, if you could. Imagine, the dream seems dead. The brothers have won. They've done it. See, we know the end of the story. We know there's a long journey ahead yet for Joseph, and we know how the story is going to turn out. But if someone is reading this story for the first time, Joseph's brothers have handled the threat. They thought the dream was to reorganize the family, putting Joseph on top. And they did not want to see things change. They were opposed to the dream. And that's one of those lessons for us here in this story, that dreams and visions are always about change. By definition, that's what a dream is, right? It's a preferred or different future. And so wanting what is currently happening to happen differently. Can you, as I mentioned in my story at the beginning, about our healthy eating contest? As Kelly and I presented that dream and vision to our family around the table with our three kids, 13, 10, and 6, can you imagine the response to that? What we did was we wanted to make it fun. So we said that you get points for eating vegetables and fruits and healthy foods, and we identified what those were. And I think you, got, you didn't get points, or you may have gotten negative points for eating things like Doritos. We thought, what a great idea. This is a dream and a vision for our family. And it was a change around the dining room table. And we received the response you would expect from change. Why? What exactly are we going to do? Our 13-year-old son said, why are you trying to ruin summer? And I was reminded of such an important truth. Only babies like change. <laughs> and even they don't always like it. Right? They do that twist, right, where they lock their legs and twist around. It's impressive. So those dreams that you have, those dreams that I just challenge you and encourage you to write down over the next few days, those dreams from God for your life, for your family, for your future, it's likely that someone will not like this change. Because you are suggesting that something that is happening will happen differently. You probably won't ever be thrown into a cistern, and you probably won't be sold into slavery, but any dream is change, and change will elicit a response from people. Every dream will elicit a response. And let me quickly go through some of these. I want to go quickly because I want to get to the, uh, the final point here. Uh, every dream will elicit responses. The first is there are three, and I've identified three. There's probably more than that. I'm sure there's more than that, but I came up with three. The first one is blamers, all right? Blamers, they see the dream as a personal attack. Why are you ruining summer? 
Why would you do this to us? They're blaming. This group is often the loudest. These are the critics and the complainers. And if dysfunction is present where there's a lack of trust or lack of communication, it'll lead to killing the dream. Blamers with a lack of trust and communication will kill the dream. There's also bystanders. Bystanders are neutral. They just don't make waves. Bystanders go with the flow and they don't create tension. Bystanders won't directly oppose change. Often they'll say, hey, what you want to, they, they, just, they, just, they, just, they just say what you want to hear. Around the dining room table as we were discussing this, this summer challenge of eating healthy, there was one child who was saying, whatever, this is mom and dad. They're never going to follow through on this. Sure, I'm on board. Whatever you say. You're just being a bystander. This will pass. And then there are backers. So you got blamers, bystanders, and backers. They not only embrace it, but they will soon become supporters and advocates and even evangelists for this dream. This group will put energy toward the dream, and this is the fun group to be around. Now, while backers are the favorite for any dream, blamers and bystanders and backers, they all play an important role in any dream, turning it into a vision and reality. Because blamers and bystanders want to know the why. Blamers often have important things to say and their perspective is needed. And Pastor Jeff has taught me this so well when it comes to say, and their perspective is needed. And valuable information can be found from those who are just asking why. Don't shut your ears to them. Hear what they have to say. Hear every perspective. Because, and, but without healthy trust and communication, this can lead to misunderstanding and an unintended outcome. Bystanders also want to be backers. They just haven't embraced the vision yet. It's an important opportunity to recast and address areas that haven't been expressed well enough. And so blamers and bystanders and backers, they all play such an important role in moving a dream forward, creating a vision and turning it into reality. And then the chapter ends in Genesis chapter 37. It's up on the screen. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar. Potiphar? Oh, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. Now let me just pause there and just suggest that I am sure that Joseph, when he was sitting in the bottom of a well, was sure that any dream he would have was gone. It's hard to dream from the bottom of a well. If he didn't abandon his dreams in the cistern, then he certainly abandoned them when he got dragged out of the well and was handed to some slave traders. I, if that didn't do it, I imagine the long journey, about a 200-mile journey, about 10 days, the dream seemed dead. Sold as a slave in Egypt, his dreaming had ended. And sometimes, dreams can seem to die. And I would call this time a cistern moment. 
a cistern moment. So let's go back to those horizons that God may have for you. You may think the dreams you had are over. And you may say to me, or you may say in your own mind, it's over. The marriage is over. There is no recovery. I mean, why even bother? The relationship with our kids is torn apart. It can't be repaired. No one's even speaking to each other. Why bother? Maybe your GPA has plummeted. Maybe graduation seems unlikely. Maybe the promotion is off the table. Maybe the career has stalled, and as I already said, it's turned into a job only. Maybe the test came back positive. And all of these could be cistern moments. But what seems like a dead end, what seems like a dream dying in a cistern, may be a next step toward the realization of your dream. See, because the story in Genesis doesn't end with this chapter. See, if we're reading it for the first time, that's where we're at. But we've got 13 chapters yet in this Genesis story where God's going to do amazing things in Joseph's life. And so sometimes, and this is not me, I found this, but I have just, I want to make it mine so bad. This is such, this is, this is one of those Twitter moments if you tweet this, please don't put my name to it because it belongs to somebody else. And I can't remember where I found it, but I love it so much. Sometimes what looks like distress is destiny in disguise. What looks like distress is destiny in disguise. Let me share with you why I find that so important. Is Hope at Mount Laurel, this campus, was a, it was, it's no longer, it was a cistern moment for me. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. On launch Sunday, I had been praying for 400 people. I, I, I think I may have even told you that. I prayed for 400 people. We have 120 seats in here right now, and I prayed for 400. I prayed a prayer that only God could answer. And I believed that God was going to answer that. And on launch Sunday, it seemed like God didn't. And I embarrassingly have to say to you that while I was excited about launch Sunday, I was most busy counting in my head. I thought on Monday morning, I was writing in my journal and I thought, God, why didn't you answer the prayer? And by Friday, I came to realize through lots of therapy with different staff members mostly, that God did. God answered, but not how I had expected. And so between Monday and Friday of that week in January, it became a cistern moment for me. Not the launch of Sunday, but the days in between. Because God answered my prayer, but not how I had expected. Now, let me explain to you what I've been praying for. I've been praying for 400 people. I was asking God to provide hope with 400 people, which really, if that had happened, would have been more than any one service at our sending campus in Voorhees. Voorhees has two, camp, uh, two services at 9 and 1030. Neither one of those campuses have 400 adults in the service. I was asking for 400 here. If God had provided 400 people here, it would have overwhelmed Hope Church. 
<laughs> it, would have, it would have overwhelmed this campus. It would have overwhelmed our infrastructure. And that isn't how God works. And so I came to realize that God has a plan for Hope Church. The dream and vision and reality is different than I had prayed for. This campus is part of that dream, and it's becoming a reality. It didn't involve a miraculous launch of 400 people. Man, that would have been a great story to tell. But that's not how God's working. It's a dream that's becoming a vision. Here's how the dream is becoming and continues to become reality. Hope Church has expanded its influence beyond our Voorhees campus. We just recently have negotiated with Chick-fil-A and Mount Laurel, who's become our new favorite friends. They're, uh, one of the things that uh, Chris Graves and I talked about was, how do we do, and I'm going to be overtime, folks, sorry about that, just going to deal with it, all right, because this is too important for me to stop. All right, so, so Chick-fil-A and Mount Laurel, uh, we were talking about how do we do a vacation Bible school? We want to, to get people from outside the church to come to church. That's such a novel idea. Most churches don't do that, all right? We're trying to figure out how to get a way to find people who don't go to church to start coming to church, all right? Just that change is dream turning into vision, into reality. And so we went to Chick-fil-A and we said, you've got lots of people because everybody loves Chick-fil-A. So how can we partner with them? And they said, family type VBS, where we show up one night a week and, and, we, and you encourage people to buy dinner and we'll do a family craft and we'll, we'll meet these new people. And they're like, yeah, we'll do that. So we're going to do that in July and August, where one night a week we're going to go to Chick-fil-A and Chick-fil-A is going to invite all of their people right, to come, have dinner, and they're going to meet Chris, and they're going to meet some of you folks, because you're going to volunteer for this, <laughs> and, 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 and guess what, if you show up and volunteer, I'll buy you a milkshake, all right, <laughs> all right, people raising their hands already, thank you so much, that's the way to make a dream into a vision, into a reality, yeah, all right, now get this, so while we were there, having this meeting with them, sitting in Chick-fil-A, and I love, we have meetings at Chick-fil-A, they say, well, well, where would you like to meet, I'm like, at Chick-fil-A, like, why would I meet anywhere else, right, and they give me free iced tea every time, I'm like, can we get you anything, yeah, iced tea, of course, right, and so we get some free iced tea, all right, so, so while we were there then, I decided to, let's just really, let's, let's just roll the dice for another one. And so I just mentioned, you know, we do this thing in our Voorhees campus called the gingerbread event. And now I was doing two things. I was preparing Chris Grace for this because she, because all these ideas are going to fall onto her plate. Uh, and so so they said, what's that? And we said, oh, well, we get like hundreds of people at our Voorhees campus to show up and we build a gingerbread house and then they meet Santa. And they said, oh, we always want to do something like that. And we went, well, we'll do it with you. And so we're going to, at Christmas time, we're going to do two, they have two stores. I found that out too. I'm like, wait, that's twice as many people. Two stores. We're going to do gingerbread meet Santa. And then we're going to do the next Friday, do gingerbread meet Santa. Now, these are all people that don't come our influence to hundreds of people. That didn't happen before January 21st. We have a team of volunteers. Some of you folks were here this morning. You are highly committed. You people show up every week, set up and tear down, and you're sweating before church even starts. You are an embodiment of St. Augustine's challenge. Pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. 
You work so hard on Sunday mornings. You show up early and you stay late. And that is a blessing. And that is the church at work. That is, yeah, clap for your Ephesians 4.12 says to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. And that is happening at this campus. We have incredible energy and spirit and worship every Sunday. And God is bringing men and women to our community. And I'm just a guy trying to figure out with God's eyes and what God is doing. We're learning about dreams and visions and realities. And God is teaching us. God is teaching hope how to be a church with two campuses. I remember praying and talking at meetings and saying, God, uh, uh, God I was praying saying, God, uh, help me know the things I don't know yet. And then I would be at meetings and I'd say, we've had all this stuff that we've done so far, we have figured out, but I don't know what we don't know yet. And what we've had in these last six months is time to figure out, here are the things we didn't know yet. Here are the things we needed to do. How to be a church with two campuses. It's changed the way the staff functions. And it's changing the way we do things. It's changing the way Pastor Jeff and I preach. It's changing how the other staff members are engaged in the preaching process. All those things are great opportunities for hope. Teaching us how to follow the author of dreams. God's growing this community of faith in ways we didn't know we need to grow. So what seems like a dead end, what seems like a dream dying in a cistern may be a next step towards the realization of your dream. Sometimes what looks like distress is destiny in disguise. Now, wherever you are, whatever dream it is that God has for you, and if you feel like you're in a cistern, let me offer a scripture to you. I've been reading it often. It's Romans chapter 8. It's verses 26, 27, and 28. But I'm reading it in the message version, and I, I think maybe it'll be clear as I read it. It's not on the screen. Just hear it. It says this. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside us, helping us along. Remember the with us, God? He's right alongside us. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. Right? God loves the dreamer more than the dream. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is working toward something good. It's working towards something good. Even cistern moments, especially cistern moments, sometimes what looks like distress is destiny in disguise. We're going to celebrate communion together on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They were celebrating the first last supper together. And very soon after that dinner concluded, the disciples would have easily thought they were having a cistern moment. A moment when a dream would not be realized. They were looking forward to Jesus coming into his kingdom and they were assuming an earthly kingdom. And then they experienced betrayal of Jesus. They experienced an arrest, a trial, and abuse and death by crucifixion. Surely the dream was dying. However, what was unknown to the disciples, that God, through Jesus, had a bigger dream. 
And so as we celebrate communion together this morning, I pray that you would know that God loves you, the dreamer, more than the dream, and that whatever cistern moment you may be experiencing, wherever it is you are, whatever place where the dream seems to have died, God's dream for you is bigger, bigger than any single moment. We are individuals and a, and a community as well that is seeking to know the dreams that you have for us and seeking to make those dreams into vision and into reality. And God, I pray that we would know that in every circumstance, you are working for good for us. And God, whatever cistern moment we may be experiencing, God, I pray that we would see your hand, we would see you working, and that, God, we would know that the final chapter has not been written on our lives. And that, God, we would look for you in those moments. Thank you, God, that you love us so much that you would offer Jesus for us. And that through a relationship with, with Christ, God, that we can know life and life everlasting. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. This whole heart, that he does love you enough that he would die for you. And that there's a world out there that is desperate to know of that kind of love. Amen. Have a great day.